Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For today's episode, we spoke with Antonio Ramon Alcala. In 2011, he released the powerful documentary In Search of Good Food, which carefully traced the crises built into the food systems in California's Central Valley, which is the source of most vegetable and many tree crops across the U.S. Antonio reflected on the film and addressed exciting new possibilities for building food sovereignty and agroecology in the Central Valley. Against the grain of powerful structures of exploitation, racial exclusion, and environmental devastation. Likewise, Antonio speaks to the emerging connections between urban agriculture and movements like the George Floyd Uprising. Afterwards, we talk with Spirit Mike, an urban farmer in Tampa, Florida, who was pushed to grow food for his neighborhood by the massive logistical failures at the start of COVID-19. He goes into the strategic moves necessary to overcome barriers to urban agriculture and how growing food led to his own explorations of a food system in crisis and the possibility of autonomous alternatives. From the Central Valley to Florida, the country's breadbaskets are also home to some of the starkest contradictions, in which whole towns of immigrant workers can be denied potable water, which is instead directed to almond orchards, and in which the urban communities can be wholly cut off from the means to grow their own food. Yet, in both these regions and across North America, people are building food sovereignty and the potential for a revolution. I'm Antonio Roman Alcala. I'm uh, born and raised in San Francisco, California, also known as Ramatush Ohlone territory, unceded. And yeah, I've been working for a little over 15 years on food and agriculture related social movements here in the US, but also with some engagement at the international level um, and sort of being plugged into other kinds of similar movements in other parts of the world. Most of my work has to do with sort of bridging divides between people who are actively practicing alternatives, those who are sort of studying both the problems of the food system as well as uh, proposed solutions. And, um, and so that brings me into a lot of scholarly or sort of research circles, but also trying to really connect food and agriculture issues to all the other kinds of issues that we as a society are, are facing, um, knowing that you know, it's not just about solving these individual sort of subject matter issues, but rather about transforming society so that many issues can be dealt with. If you could say I had a focus, it's that focused, meaning not very focused at all. 
So in 2007 or so, I had already been involved in doing this urban farming project, uh, Alamini Farm, for a couple of years and had been sort of learning about food systems primarily through my engagement in urban agriculture. But doing that, you know, even though it was very exciting politically, I knew that that couldn't be the extent of what was going on in the food system, right? We couldn't just look at the food system from an urban perspective narrowly. Um, and so I wanted to figure out what exactly would it mean to have a sustainable food system. Sustainable was the cool word at the time. And I thought, well, I need to like figure out what's going on outside the city, obviously. But I also was facing the, the reality that I was just some guy. And how was I going to get, you know, farmers and activists and indigenous groups and all these other people who are working on various aspects of food systems to talk to me? So I came up with the idea of a documentary film as a sort of vehicle to essentially do an informal research project on what was a sustainable food system in California. And if it didn't exist, which I was pretty sure it did not, uh, what was kind of preventing it from, from coming in, in, into being. And so that was really what motivated the, the, the whole idea of a movie, because it wasn't really like, I wasn't a filmmaker. I, I was learning by doing the documentary film, not really having that much of a clue about how to do it. And yeah, I mean, it was a, an amazing experience. I ended up interviewing probably about 70 different people throughout the state over about a two month period. You know, that access really happened because, well, one, it was in the winter time when we did that trip. So at least for farmers, it was the relatively more relaxed time of the year, but also because, yeah, a lot of people are kind of stoked when you ask them questions and they're on camera and they're being interviewed uh, in a way that if you're just, you know, a graduate student or someone who just randomly wants to talk to you, you might not be that excited about. It was a big learning project for me, like learning process, a project to have a learning process for myself. But also I had this idea that at the time there wasn't really very many media examples that were looking at food systems in this really critical way. There was maybe Food Inc. I think had been out at that point. There was maybe a couple of food documentaries, but it wasn't the genre that it's now become. And I also felt like as someone who already at that point identified as an anti-capitalist, I felt like there wasn't exactly media that was going to call into question some of these fundamental issues about capitalism's overlap with the food system. You know, at the same time, there's so many things going on just in California, right? I was that's narrow enough, right? We're not even talking about the US food system or the global food system, just what's going on here in California. There were so many issues that initially I really wanted to try to cover all of it. And I, I had planned on making eight different shorter films about different topics in food systems. Okay, we'll have one about meat and all the dynamics around meat and overproduction of meat and you know that side of the food system. We might have one about water because water is obviously such a big issue in California. Um, and then the dry West in general, another one about labor and so on, right? And, and I thought that would make sense in the, in the way of trying to break down this complex system into some component parts. In the end, because I was such an amateur, I didn't capture enough B-roll to really show all of those aspects in a really deep and fulfilling way. And so we ended up making the one film that sort of tried to tie together a lot of these themes rather than compartmentalize them. And I really have my collaborator, Sasha, who, who basically I met through Craigslist and ended up helping us with both some of the shooting as well as the main editing of the film. I really have him to thank because a lot of the ways that we were able to actually craft a cohesive sort of narrative, I would call it kind of a video essay, 
uh, was because of his skills in editing and, and shooting. So that's pretty much the story of the film as like a project to really, that project was just to break me out of the urban focused mindset that I had at the time. And I knew I needed to get beyond it, but I didn't know exactly how or how to connect uh, at a much broader level. And this was way before I really fancied myself an academic or a scholar or someone who would do quote unquote research. So it, it wasn't really pitched as a research project, though ultimately I think that's what it is. And one other thing I'll say about it is that now that I teach in university contexts, I really love the fact that we're starting to see other forms of knowledge generation validated in the academy. The idea that of course students are going to resonate more if they can develop a real skill like video editing in concert with learning in a really deep way about different issues. How much cooler is that than assuming everyone has to talk in or use the language of academic credentialed sort of format. It's just really limiting, uh, even though I do that stuff too. I just find it more inspiring to think about the fact that we can all learn and teach and share and grow with a lot of different avenues, right? A lot of different formats. It's well known that in California, we have issues with water, right? The the, the issue of the West being dry in general and like fights over water uh, access primarily for agriculture have been a big part of history. There's the famous uh, Mark Twain quote, which maybe he didn't actually say, which is that uh, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over. Um, that's actually a quote I learned of from making my film. And um, one of the great interviews I did with uh, Brock Dolman, he was the one who told me that. And I think that you know, that's well known, but what's not so well known is that we don't just have sort of a lack of water. And in fact, some would argue we don't even really have a lack of water. What we have is a really mismanagement of the water that actually falls, the precipitation that falls in California. And so that mismanagement looks like a lot of things. It looks like damming of rivers, which causes all this harm to ecosystems. Uh, and then causes problems elsewhere. It looks like the contamination of water, whether that's going back to the mining days, the gold mining days of the mid 1800s, all the way to today with industry and agriculture itself, which uses all sorts of toxic uh, chemicals and fertilizers, which get into water and then have their own impacts. To me, one of the most sort of depressing, disgusting things about the California ecology is that we had a brilliant amount of water and that indigenous people before European colonization had plentiful sources of fresh drinking water. And now we've effectively destroyed 99% of those sources. And so now we have a situation where across the board, California has bad water. Like you can't drink water that just comes out of springs in the ground in most places, but it's especially acute in the Central Valley where most of this industrial agriculture has been based historically, right? And so in that Central Valley, you have a situation where we have this really unequal access to land and unequal power relations between basically owners of large farms and the workers who are required to make those farms profitable. And those workers live in these small communities where the water systems are really rudimentary, basically. They're like really undeveloped water systems. They're often based on pumps that come from the groundwater. And that groundwater, like I said, has been toxified by various chemical attributes of the industrial agricultural model. And so in the movie, I interview folks from a couple of these really small 
unincorporated towns and the fact that they have this drinking water, which is known to be toxic. It literally will kill their children if they let their children drink it. And they have to buy bottled water just to survive for drinking, but also for washing dishes and for bathing. They use this other costly water in order to survive, but they still have to pay the municipal water company for the water that they get out of their tap. And it's just absurd that we live in California, the wealthiest state in the nation. And it's also, you know, whatever they say, it's the sixth, I can't remember if it's the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world at this point. And yet we have 1 million people, fully 1 million people out of 30 something million who don't have access to clean drinking water. It just seems really absurd. And the irony on top of it, that these are the people who literally work in the fields where they're getting subsidized, the farms are getting subsidized clean water that's coming from snowpack. Essentially all of this water infrastructure, the state water project, the Central Valley Water Project, these are huge infrastructures invested in by the federal and state governments, basically at the behest of capital, at the behest of industrial agriculture, and they move all this water around in really ecologically damaging ways. And then they put it on these you know, highly profitable tree crops right next to these communities that have no drinking water. So the irony of that is just too much to bear. So I felt like that had to be sort of not central, but it had to be included in this movie because I think especially again for for the audience I was thinking of for the movie originally, which is people who sort of care about food sustainability in this broadly ecological way, that these social justice implications are very like need to be central if we think about ecology, like they're not distinct impacts of the industrial agricultural system. They are tied impacts. And you can't really think about a sustainable food system if you don't address the issues that are impacting folks like these farm worker communities in the unincorporated Central Valley. That's why I felt like it was really important to include this particular story, but also just to point out these connections between food and sort of inequalities rather than, you know, keep it at the level of sort of sustainability as a sort of ecological concept. The people that I interviewed, they showed us these letters they get from the water company. So it's a municipal uh, water company that sends them these notices. I think it was every six months. Uh, and the notices basically say, your water is poisonous. We know that your water is poisonous. Please don't use it for these uses. It will cause you cancer if you expose yourself to it too much. And basically that's it. It just tells them every six months, like, hey, your water is toxic don't use it, but they continue paying for this water and being asked to pay for this water. Definitely the the women I interviewed were pretty incredulous that this is like ridiculous that they've been getting these, these notices for five years in a row and nothing actually changes about the provisioning of the water. They're given no support, they're given, given no other options for water, and they're definitely not given economic relief like, hey, maybe we should not have you pay for this toxic water. Uh, and instead they have to travel because this is also, you know, the Central Valley is a sort of spread out place. Uh, a lot of it is actually technically by the census, uh, metropolitan, meaning urban. It's not actually considered rural, which is a strange thing, but um, that's a sort of statistical anomaly. But the point is they still have to travel pretty far to get fresh water. And so they, they, they go into town and they're into other towns, right? Because these are very small towns on the outskirts of the sort of main urban centers. And so they have to go into town and fill up these huge you know, jugs every so often. 
And again, it costs money. You know, this is not cheap to buy bottled water. Some people would be reliant on straight up like pallets of bottled water. And there are some aid efforts and, and NGO efforts to simply provide bottled water to a lot of these communities. But of course, people know that that's not a sustainable uh, intervention either. And there have been more efforts lately to pressure the state, especially to provide uh, infrastructure to actually uh, detoxify the water. So there are a couple of towns now since I made the movie that have successfully gotten huge grants to basically put in water treatment facilities, but neither of the communities that I interviewed have had that happen. And yeah, it's been, you know, 10 years since I made the movie and the situation is, is largely the same. And I didn't even get into it in the movie that this issue of water toxicity is also tied to issues of land subsidence, right? The overdrafting of aquifers by industrial ag chasing all the cheapest water in order to basically make mega profits off of mostly permanent crops like almonds and pomegranates. And that that these are processes that go back 80, 90 years. They're not new, but they're continuations of this long legacy of totally over-exploitation of the land tied to over-exploitation of, of the communities. And that politically speaking, these communities, because they're composed of mostly migrant workers, um, or people who are not native born to the US. These are people who have very little political power as it is. And then on top of it, they live in unincorporated communities, which literally have no you know, city council, no mayor, they have no political representation. And their only representation is at the county level. And often these counties are basically tied hand in hand to agribusiness interests. And literally the people who sit in these positions of power are from the same families who own all this land. And so it's a really pretty entrenched system in the area. And I, again, something that I think that people who are sort of urban, focused on food as a sort of vehicle towards, you know, sort of sustainability or, you know, reconnecting to food and local food systems and all these wonderful things uh, need to be attending to this as well. And not just think of it as a sort of like, that'll go away when you have your other alternative food systems sort of developed. I know I just presented a picture that sounds pretty dreary around political possibilities, uh, particularly in the Central Valley and around these issues of sort of water access and uh, the chronic overexploitation of the, the marginalized labor force, which is primarily migrant. It's definitely, if you look at historically speaking, this is a long-standing issue and it seems unlikely to sort of resolve itself magically or suddenly. But I do want to say there are things that have seemed to be shifting more recently. So in my recent research and activist practice collaborations with people in the Central Valley, there's a really inspiring new sort of cohering around this concept of agroecology, which is funny to me because, you know, in the urban context, we do urban farming. People talk about food justice a little bit, but very little did I hear about food sovereignty, agroecology. These are really the terms that were primarily seen in the international sphere and weren't really leveraged or mobilized around uh, here in the US, but through a series of events, which I don't think I want to get into, the term agroecology was introduced to these various community organizations in the Central Valley, some of whom represent some of these farm worker based communities and are really grounded in a kind of grassroots model. Other ones are sort of environmental justice focused advocacy groups like the Community Water Center, which I interviewed it for the movie. And so there are a variety of groups and most of them are doing sort of what you would think of as anti work. They're trying to go against pesticides being over applied right in proximity to schools and get some justice for the migrant communities 
companies that have to be exposed to these pesticides or opposing agribusiness power in all these different ways. But in agroecology, they found this inspiring sort of central vision that both talked about the, the, the problems of an industrial capitalist agricultural model and all of the associated systems of exploitation, right? So there's an awareness of like colonization. There's there's indigenous groups, the Wachumni tribe uh, based around Visalia, California, who are part of this process where the, the tribes, these farm worker groups, these environmental justice groups, these groups a little bit more focused on what we traditionally thought of as sustainable agriculture. All of these are coming together around agroecology and saying, you know what, we see that these systems are tied together, like the existing injustices actually have capitalism, colonialism, white supremacy at their roots. And we have this transformative visionary alternative that kind of feeds off of all of these different capacities and, and beautiful things we bring to this land, right? So it's not an, uh, just a model based on what's lacking, but you know, oh, we don't have clean drinking water. That's true. But a lot of these communities are also saying, you know, we come from places where we know how to maintain the land in a in a beneficial for all life kind of way. Why can't we do that? Why can't we transform the farm economy to be about us as stewards rather than us as exploited workers? I'm inspired by this because it's there's been a lot of conversations that are interesting, but also a shift in how they actively pursue a lot of this anti kind of work and link it to this transformational ask or demand or vision, right? It's not even always an ask. It's not like, hey, we want the government to do X, Y, and Z for us. Although there are definitely campaigns that focus on demands from government because they're also working on things like this vision of an agroecology center that brings together all of these different constituent groups in the Central Valley and has them organizing in a proactive sort of prefigurative way to create these alternative farm economies and to actively create new political activism that opposes the agribusiness model and also contests for power in local elected positions. So that's the other thing that I am not a personally a very like stoked on elections kind of person, but I've seen and I'm inspired by the folks I met in the Central Valley who are actively contesting some of these things like the water boards, the local and county, like county supervisor districts, all these spaces where coming from farm worker family positions, they are able to articulate these critiques and these demands in a way that hasn't really been done from positions of authority from what I know in the history of the Central Valley. The history of the Central Valley is so steeped in this white supremacist sort of capitalist model that it's been mostly, you know, worker movements who have pushed against the, you know, their, the owner class and then had the basically government come in on the side of the owner class. That's been the history. And now there are these little pockets of resistance or a difference within the government, which I, I think might actually have some pretty interesting effects in the coming decades. And I think this is largely attributable to well, two things. One is, you know, this shift around kind of the social justice turn, the fact that people are paying attention to racial injustice as a fundamental part of our society. But it's not just racial justice, right? There's there's a sort of awareness of queerness and how queer identities and visions and alternative ways of being in the world also intersect with migrant status and also intersect with race. Like the movements that I'm in dialogue with in the Valley are actually acting in this sort of more 
intersectional way that, you know, theoretically movements are supposed to be in this day and age. So I think the the sort of attention to like a lot of different dynamics and how they come together is one strength and what's contributing to this sort of electoral push is that people are are getting into these positions and bringing a lot of communities that have been there and sort of invisibilized for a long time into dialogue. And then the other part of it is essentially demographic transitions and the fact that there are a lot of uh, people born in the state whose parents, you know, came here as immigrant workers or, you know, there's a lot of this sort of uh, next generation that for whatever reason, this is a much longer conversation, for whatever reason, they're fired up and their politics are way more radical than their parents and then a lot of previous generation, uh, previous generations of first generation, you know, U.S. born folks, right? I think that there is the dynamic that's always going to be there of assimilationist migrant stories, right? Your parents came here, they struggled really hard to get you into college, and then you go to be part of the power system, and you, wow, great for you, you made it out of the Central Valley and out of this poverty. But that's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing folks who are being brought up in that and are going to college in order to move back to where they're from and fight the systems that they grew up under, which is, I think, very different than uh, what we've seen a lot of previous rounds. And so I'm pretty hopeful that there actually is something like a shift happening. Whether it's enough to overcome the entrenched power of capital in the Central Valley, I mean, of course, that's an open question. And I think it's linked to revolutionary movements outside of the state, you know, and around the globe. It's interesting as a person who really identifies primarily as someone who likes to work in the world and make change, and then someone who secondarily also likes to study what is going on and think about it and have these processes that people often call scholarship or research or academic kind of work. I think the issue of terminology essentially comes up a lot in both spaces, right? And terminology is sometimes uh, seen as the most important thing in a problematic way where then it becomes like all that people care about is do you use the right terms or you know can we work together because you do or don't use such and such term um and then on the other hand there's the people who you know are like well that's all just you know bullshit rhetoric and it really matters is what you do on the ground you know so i try to stray away from either of these dogmatisms right and and see that terminologies matter and actually have an impact yet what matters about them is how they are enacted. And so for me, I referenced this earlier, but for me kind of growing into this area of work, I didn't really get exposed to food sovereignty as a term or agroecology until maybe five or six years after I had started doing this kind of work. And it was really the exposure to these terms and reconnecting to a broader internationalism, which I sort of had a little bit in my youth because of how I grew up and the communities that I was a part of, which were largely immigrant also. And so I had that sort of in me, but my politics that I was enacting were very localized and not necessarily thinking about them in that global context. And food sovereignty emerged very explicitly as a term from La Via Campesina, which is an international social movement composed of peasants and small, small farmers, basically peasants, indigenous folks, uh, fisher folks, a lot of these constituencies from around the world. And it includes people from the global north. It should be noted that this isn't like these are just people from the global south or the third world. It included from its foundation people from Canada, organizations in Canada and Europe, 
um, later in the US. But the important thing is that food sovereignty came out of these movements really rooted in ideas and struggles and visions of uh, peasants from the global south, right? Especially a lot of it comes from a Latin American tradition. And food sovereignty is so, to me, has always been way ahead of what food justice as a concept says, but also what it was as a practice, right? So essentially the way I distinguish it is often like food justice is essentially saying there are things about the food system which are based on longstanding injustices and we need to remedy those injustices if we want to make a food system that works. Whereas food sovereignty very explicitly by including the term sovereignty is talking about systems of power and access to decision making about those systems. And I think that food justice could talk about those things. It does sometimes in practice bring up issues of power, but it isn't as a concept necessarily explicit uh, about that in the way that food sovereignty is. Now, agroecology, again, means a lot of different things to different people depending on how it's used. But here in the US, a lot of people hear it and they think, oh, that's an academic word. It's something that only academics really care about. You know, here we have organic agriculture. So why do we need the term agroecology? Well, internationally, agroecology is like the sister of food sovereignty. They're inextricably linked. The idea is that, I mean, and you can think of it two ways. It's either that to get to food sovereignty, to get to a system where we actually have democratic grounded control over our food systems, we need to use agroecology as a tool and agroecology essentially meaning ecologically based forms of food production that are really rooted in specific ecologies. And that includes the cultural and political ecologies of the people, right, who are engaged in those food systems. So you can think of agroecology as a tool to reach towards food sovereignty, but the reverse is also true. You can think of agroecology as the ideal way of producing food that does not compromise our ability to produce food in the future. But it the only way to get there is to increase democratic power over our food systems and to decrease this unequal power of capital essentially in our society. And I would argue the unequal power of capital in cahoots with the state. So for me, both food sovereignty and agroecology became these things that you can't have one without the other. And that when you get, for example, these Central Valley communities starting to talk about agroecology as a vision, what that's really pointing to is that there's now no way you can talk about the food production like, oh, are we using compost or bot inputs or all these things that are sort of technical or concrete. That conversation can't be had without also attending to power inequalities, to systemic and sort of long-standing forms of exclusion, right? Like that these are things that because they're about sovereignty, they're also about agroecology and vice versa. And that's why it was really inspiring to me to see how it's been taken up literally in the last six years. And in terms of the story of how it got picked up, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think people would be interested in the details, but I do think it says something again, to these narratives about, oh, terms are just terms and they don't matter, or, or alternately, like the most important thing is the term. Because what happened essentially is that people who were academically informed, meaning people like myself, close comrade of mine who went to UC Davis, but she had grown up uh, working on a farm and had relationships with some of the workers there. So she had both practice in her background and is a person of color and came from a certain sort of background that uh, she was attuned, let's say, to some of these sort of social justice implications in farming. But she was also educated. She went to 
a university. So she and I had worked together. She was the one who founded this sort of coalition of environmental justice groups in the Valley. She and I worked together to have a series of these events that brought together a lot of these groups and actually used the term agroecology to catalyze conversations about strategy. And so essentially we introduced the term to people who had not heard the term, but had all of this knowledge and skills and vision and passion and history, like they had all of these things. And that when they heard of agroecology and they had this opportunity to suture together a lot of the works that they were doing through this term, it allowed them to sort of cohere in a way. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been possible without agroecology, but it certainly helped in that process. And now that they're using that term, they found other allies and they're incorporating all of these other sort of resources and, and, and movements and groups around this vision and getting a lot of support for it, finding a lot of support of, for it within the very community. So I, I think this story does tell us something about how the terms do matter because when we use them as organizing tools to get people to consider their own positions, to consider the relationships between their own constituent groups and another that is also impacted, um, that when we use these terms to support a process of politicization, of self-education and of action, then they're really meaningful terms. And my hope, my excitement is that that what also happens is you get a reverse effect, that agroecology cannot be seen as a purely academic thing here in the US when ground-based movements are mobilizing under the term. And the same thing I know that often our equivalents outside of the US, especially in the global South, they don't see US movements in the way that I think they should and could. And so having you know, migrant farm worker based organizations mobilizing around the term that they themselves use in India or in, you know, Venezuela or whatever, wherever um, is going to also help to build that global solidarity that we need to really create a sort of common political paradigm or language for transformation. So I think that terms are important if we're actively mobilizing around them and, and, and continually revisiting what they mean rather than just assuming they always mean something. And, you know, if you just use the right language, then all of a sudden everything goes well. Urban agriculture has been around for as long as urban places have been around, really, right? But it's been seen a lot sort of in the media or just more sort of discussed, let's say, over the last 20 years, especially. And I think, you know, urban ag has a sort of assumption that like it fulfills a lot of different needs, right? But that one of the fundamental things is that urban people are disconnected from food systems. We use them every day, but we don't really necessarily engage in them in any deep way. We don't really know what's going on behind our food and all that stuff. And so urban ag is sort of this first step towards just being aware of like what it is to grow food. And I think that's really important, but another thing that has gotten lost in some of the, at least in some of the academic debates about urban ag, is that really there are fundamental needs for food that people have that we forget about when we abstract into forms of politics that are so mediated in so many ways. And that certainly most urban ag folks who've been around for a while don't say, oh, we're going to grow all of our food via urban ag. No one really thinks that. There is a reality that like food is important and some people need food and we can grow food that helps support people in their needs for food. And that 
we saw in this recent George Floyd uprising moment that activists, especially those who are sort of at the forefront of pushing against the state in, per, in particular, that they need support to be resilient in the face of the repression that inevitably happens uh, when folks rise up. And so it was cool to see that some of the urban ag projects here in the Bay Area were attuned to this, especially, of course, the Black-led projects, but there was some a handful of them. There's a variety of them. And, and they saw that, hey, like we would really like to be able to figure out how to shift what we produce towards those people who are on the front lines of these various battles. Literally, they're like in the streets fighting against the police. Like that is something that is to me kind of new in urban ag um, because urban ag has been not depoliticized, but its form of politics has been relatively tepid or milk toast, or at least like sort of reformist oriented and very rarely explicitly tied to a transformative vision for society that says we need to completely rethink all these aspects of society. And so I'm inspired to see that there are these inklings, they're very small, I would not try to overstate them, but at least some inkling of a shift to where urban ag is more solidly tied to movements that are let's say revolutionary in at least their aspirations, if not their practice. So that's something that I've been seeing. And I think another thing that I have been trying to push back on in, in some of my scholarly work is that there's a, there's a lot of this assumption that essentially it's like a statist mindset that says social provisioning should happen via the state. And the problem of the contemporary order is that the state after the golden age, uh, post-World War II has retreated under neoliberalism and left, you know, in its absence, the responsibility of social provisioning to the nonprofit sector. And that the nonprofit sector essentially is there excusing the state of its proper responsibilities. That's the narrative that I see a lot in the scholarly work on urban ag. And so it basically says, oh, urban ag is cool, you know, at sometimes, but it's really neoliberal because it's, you know, it's not advocating for basically the state to provide for people. And I find that really weird because if you look at the history, this is what I talked about in this article for Civil Eats about mutual aid, is that if you look at it, like mutual aid is a strategy that all oppressed people use when they can't get their needs met by the political economic order. And the political economic order includes the state that we face today, as well as the conditions of colonial capitalism. And so in this country, the primary groups that have really mobilized mutual aid as a daily necessity have been mostly black folks as well as indigenous folks. They're not the only groups, but that's been a central strategy to address conditions of existence and to build communities that have more resilience than less, right? And so the idea that calling those strategies neoliberal to me is just super silly and very like imposing an academic worldview and a statist worldview on an existing complicated social formation, right? Because, you know, mutual aid doesn't inherently also mean anti-state. Some people just jump into mutual aid because they just want to provide for each other or they need to, and that's instinct, right? It doesn't mean that you're also never going to be involved in reformist work in the state or something like that, right? There's groups that do both. But I guess for me, what's important is that when we saw the pandemic and all this mutual aid sort of initiatives coming about. And then also 
the uprisings and then these, these sort of dynamics I'm talking about where people are finally linking sort of racial justice abolitionist movements to the food system and to these prefigurative alternatives of making urban farms and whatnot, that in this moment, I think it's really important to trace that trajectory and to say, you know what, this isn't a new thing for people to do mutual aid. It's very instinctual. This is what Kropotkin was talking about when he wrote his original book was that this is actually quite natural for people, for people like human beings, in addition to other kinds of animals and plants to practice mutual aid, right? And so that we shouldn't think of it as an anomaly, we should actually try to just think of it as an inspiration or how we might actually build a different society that's based on different values and different practices. I'm cautiously optimistic that some of these food systems projects are shifting towards that, or at least getting that that's a thing in a way they haven't before. And I do know, at least like I've been in dialogue with one organization that is a very kind of mainstream, they're all white women run a uh, very sort of professional class insider policy kind of organization that works on climate agriculture issues in the state. But their director has reached out to me after that article and was like, you know what, we are trying to figure out how can we actually support this kind of stuff? Like we do policy, but like don't want to be divorced from the reality that like this is what marginalized communities are facing. Like how can we actively support these efforts as well? And so I think that there's some a little bit of a, it's definitely post-Trumpian, right, right, or reactive to Trump, right? They're like a bunch of white-led organizations in this past five years have been like, oh my God, we can't just claim to not be racist. We actually have to do something, you know, and, and that's maybe not going to go well. I don't want to be too cynical about it, but I do think that the fact that they're even asking themselves these questions, trying to have conversations with people and learn um, indicates some amount of forward progression. So as I've gotten more involved in sort of research stuff, as I sort of mentioned, I, I keep more of my activist uh, identity or whatever you want to call it, like at the forefront. And so one of the things that happened was that I ended up uh, co-founding this group called the Agroecology Research Action Collective or ARC. And really what ARC is about is about creating a political formation among researchers who already research within the North American context on things like food justice, food sovereignty, and agroecology, right? We know that it's become a sort of hip popular topic and there's a lot of people working on it. And uh, within that, there's also more and more folks who are working in a sort of collaborative mode, uh, meaning that they're not just researching about these issues, but actually alongside either community groups or, you know, urban farms or social movement organizations trying to sort of advance the, an activist scholarship around these issues. And so I felt like it was really important that we had an actual collective space, right? We need to push back against the sort of individualizing careerist mode that academics are really pushed to take on and to really think about how can we actually collectivize our, our own efforts and to create a community of practice so that we're improving the way we do these things and especially improving the ethical content of how we do research, right? Because there's a big problem of extractive kinds of research, right? With, you know, well-meaning folks who come in from the academy and are like, oh, I want to see how you're doing this amazing thing, uh, the grassroots level, and then you know, basically waste a lot of people's time, get a lot of their information and then use it to build your career and don't really do anything of tangible benefit to those communities. So we want to work against that and create a space uh, and create a sort of North Star so that 
other academics and other institutions can see that actually it's totally legitimate to do partnership-based research. It's actually a, a fully a vetted mode of science. It's not just some you know activist that you can belittle and say, oh, that's not real science, uh, but also just shift the institutions themselves and how they normally practice things like research. And so we've been involved in a lot of different projects over the like four or five years that we've been around. And I think what inspires me is that for one, I've been involved in a lot of different activist projects and groups, and it's one of the least conflict-ridden spaces I've ever been in, which is really surprising because, you know, you think academics are sort of these notoriously like selfish and combative kind of people, but in fact, we have some really amazing people who are keep themselves very humble and very in dialogue with each other, as well as with our social movement partners, and really patiently sort of deliberately trying to figure out ways of acting that actually are in relationships of accountability and dialogue, right? Rather than just sort of like, we know all the answers and we go ahead. And so, yeah, it's been really inspiring on that front, uh, just as a process to be a part of, but then also that we've seen some tangible effects already from this work. Again, back to like how I try to push back against some of these dogmatic sort of either dismissals of things or hyper idealization of them. I think that happens with uh, scholarly work in academia as well. There's a lot of people on the sort of woke left that are like academics are just, you know, like they just use movements and like there's this big sort of like if you're an academic, you're not a real social movement person. And in contrast to that, not only do we have many members who have active roles in social movement formations, and do research. So people like myself who actually are involved in things that are social movements as well as do research, right? So that dismantles this dichotomy in itself, but also we have seen that our academic work or our work to push academic institutions in a different direction have already been picked up and sort of acted upon by non-academics. So the, the simple example of that is that we developed a thing called the principles and protocols, which is essentially just the ethics of how we think uh, this collaborative research should be done. And we made this document, we kind of like crowdsourced from our own membership and existing models. And this is sort of how ARC commits to working and anyone within ARC. But we've used that and basically shared it with a lot of social movement partners, including members of the US Food Sovereignty Alliance. And we've heard various stories now of folks like from, you know, sort of radical food banks to urban ag projects to BIPOC led projects who have taken on these principles and use them to vet incoming requests for research. So now when they're getting approached by institutions or folks from institutions saying, oh, we love what you're doing, we want to research you. They're like, well, uh, how are you gonna compensate us for our time? Or like, how are we gonna be involved in developing the research questions, right? And if they don't get satisfactory answers, they're able to say, you know what? We don't wanna participate in your research project. We know that it can be done in a more ethical format that respects our needs. And so we've already seen that there's an effect of proposing that there's another way of doing research simply by proposing it. We make the road by walking it, right? And we have to be able to like enjoy that walk preferably. And it's much more enjoyable to do the work when you're in this sort of generous of spirit ebb and flow of people's energies, right? with academics, but the same thing with movement folks, with farmers, I found this, like, it's hard to rely on people, right, to come through consistently. And when you're generous of spirit and know that people will show up when they can, and when the people show up, like, in a positive way when they show up, then a lot of things are possible.
we use both and thinking and we use sort of expansive, you know, I don't want to call it optimism, like it's sort of sort of naive and just, oh, things will be good if we do this. But I think that there's a little bit too much of the cutting down in both academic and social movement worlds where we're like, oh, well, that's fine, but it's not enough. You know, it could never do X, Y, and Z. And I think I wish, you know, that people had a little bit more of this openness and humility, you know, where we can say, we don't know all of the effects of when we take our stimulus check and turn it in to a garden where we live. But I know that the effect will likely be towards a changed world more than if we don't do that, right? And if we're able to, from time to time, plan in, you know, or at least know that we have in ourselves some self-criticism or some reflection time, right? Where we're able to say, well, are we accomplishing our goals? What are we doing that's maybe against what we want to do? Are we living our values? All those things about questioning are important, but that fundamentally, like we need to try these experiments. And those experiments are often by nature going to be local, place-based, relationship-based. And that rather than this society's tendency to say, oh, if you don't make change at this massive scale, if you don't get corporations on board, if you don't get the government to pass a policy, it's not real change. I think we need to push back against that and be like, you know what? Change has always been made in this way. And we never know exactly how it's going to turn out or what the ripple effects are, or you know, we don't necessarily have or need to have a fully fleshed out strategy for every step of the way. But it's important to begin and it's important to, to have a little bit more openness about how people are working um, than so much of this jockeying for like the right way to do things. Maybe it's my immersing myself in academic work, but there's too much of this criticality uh, without that, that like positive hope and collaboration. And you know, like it's like being in a relationship, you don't expect the other person to be perfect. And when they do something that's not right, you like bring it up and you deal with it. And hopefully you grow and you move on and then you have a better relationship after that. The same thing should be the case of how we treat each other in movements rather than being so certain that this is the right way to do it. And that one, that one's not radical enough. That one's not reformist enough. That one, you know, all this kind of uh, judgment that tends to, I think, distract us from what is actually going on. Up next, we have Spirit Mike, who took his stimulus check and created an urban garden in his own Tampa, Florida neighborhood. Hey, how you doing? My name is Spirit Mike, and my company is New World Growers. I'm based out of Tampa, Florida. How long have you been doing New World Growers? Not very long, since the beginning of the last pandemic. What happened was, uh, when the pandemic first started, uh, we were going into the grocery store. Tampa, Florida, we have stores called Winn-Dixie uh, Grocery Stores. You know, a lot of them are centered around the urban area. I went into the Winn-Dixie, and people were in a full-fledged panic. Yeah, it was like 40% of all the goods was missing. And stuff was scattered all over the place, and people were fighting over bleach. And, yeah, it was, it, it was real crazy. So civility for that moment was gone. And, you know, it was, it was crazy. So I wanted to think it to myself because, I made money, you know, I, I thought I was doing okay. So I had a little money in my pocket, you know, I drove trucks and whatnot, you know, real blue collar work at the time. And I thought, I said, well, if they don't put food in the store, it don't even matter how much money I have, you know? So it was a real eye opener, you know, it was like a, a, a cold splash of water all over, you know, um, I, I was not really in charge of my destiny because someone else was controlling my nutrition, my food. 
at the at the particular time, I was making you know driving truck, and you know I didn't have any extra money to start, so I so I had to start research, and that's when I I dug deep into my core and what I call my you know my my street hustle, you know, so I, I had to figure out how can I get this thing done with as little uh, capital as possible. Then the stimulus came out. I didn't I didn't even think I was going to get it. I didn't get the big one. I got the six hundred dollar one. So I was like, okay, this is this is what I have. I have to flip this into uh, what I call now generational food. You know, so, so then I started doing some more research and I thought I found little known information that the government didn't tell us. And that information was you can buy fruit and vegetable trees with food stamps. So it, it was it was a shock. It was it was not really a shock that my government would hide and things of that nature. But it was a shock that how long that law had been there that I that no one even even the boule of us, even the learned of black people didn't either know or wouldn't dismiss. So once I found out that you could buy fruit vegetable trees with food stamps, that doubled my ability to purchase with that six hundred dollars. And now, if you don't qualify for food stamps, it's not exactly illegal to be able to use the food stamps on your own. But someone else can get what you need with the food stamps. It's food, and you can do a barter system. And that makes it legal. And that's what I did. You know, um, I found a place here in Plant City called A Land of Delight Natural Farm. Um, it's run by a, a pastor that I now know because we, we developed a uh, relationship named uh, Pastor Eric uh, Gunyan. And yeah, my world opened up. I started getting organic fruits and vegetables and and I started getting knowledge. I started learning more and more on the importance of growing your own food and the nutrition, uh, the nutritional value of growing your own food because, you know, everything that you find in the grocery store has been hybrid, uh, you know, a hybrid of a hybrid. Almost everything you eat in there, your body may not even recognize it as food. So, I, uh, so when I was... Going according to the government's recommendation on what I should eat, I was obese. I, I you know, I had had a lot of uh, problems with my health. But when I, you know, once I took my health in my own hands, you know, and I started doing research, like there's one plant that I call God's plant. Well, one of them, one of the two, and that's moringa. And once I found that, uh, and found out the stats on there, it, it has all the nutrients you need to not only survive but to thrive by itself. One to two spoonfuls of moringa powder, or organic moringa powder, has all the, the nutrients you need, period, for a human. And I call it the new manna. But they didn't tell me that. I had to go and research it myself. And then, and with you know further research, I found out that iodine, they took iodine out of our diet, out of our cycle of nutrition, because it's one of the key components of gland health. If you don't have sufficient enough iodine daily in your diet, none of your glands will function properly. So they don't tell the citizens this. The average person is because if you don't have iodine, then you will be sick. There's no if ands, or buts about it. If you don't eat it, and then the miseducation comes. So they don't tell you that stuff like iodine is integral. Not only is it integral, they don't tell you where it comes from. We're not told to look. We think iodine comes from fish and seafood shrimp but that's not the author of it because when if that was the case when they farm raise it then iodine would be in the fish and in the shrimp that they farm raised of which it is not in there 
So they don't tell you this because kelp, uh, iodine comes from kelp, the seagrass. So if you are having gland problems, if you eat kelp, which you most people are not allergic to seagrass because they don't even test it. They say, oh, you're, you're allergic to shrimp, and they tell you you're allergic to shrimp. They don't, they don't test the iodine that I know of. You know, I don't know anybody allergic to seagrass. There's probably somebody out there, but it's not prevalent. So if you don't have it somewhere, of course you're going to have problems. So how I found that out as I was walking through this self-same Winn-Dixie I was telling you about that people were going crazy in, and I just so happened to look at the bottle of the salt I was about to purchase, and some people say my brain turned on, uh, you know, I had an epiphany and all of that stuff. But when I looked at the bottle, it said something, and I read it. It says, this does not contain iodine, a necessary nutrient. But since my brain was turned on, I said, well, if it's necessary, how come it's not in the salt? And then I had to ask myself further, I know what necessary means. So, um, and at the time when I, when I was reading this bottle, I was in, in early, early 30s, so maybe 32, 33, 34, somewhere around there. And I said, if something is necessary, that means I need it. And I said, well, how can I get to this age and not know that I need that? You see what I'm saying? The amount of the lack of education that was given to the people is crazy. It's crazy. Once I found out that little tidbit, then, that, then I had to go down the rabbit hole. It was really, it's really deep. So you mean you took iodine out of all the food in society? <laughs> and even if a person goes to the hospital for gland problems, thyroid problems, they don't give them the iodine for their a glands to repair itself, they do surgery and give you other pills outside of what you need to repair it. I said, well, why? Then that's another topic. And But you guys and gals can make your own determination of what that means, why they would dissemble such information. So after the pandemic, I started with tomatoes. There's a funny thing about growing things. You know, you actually pay attention. You actually get connected to something other than yourself because this is your baby now. So now you started looking at the world differently. So now with my company, New World Growers, I mean, some people say the name hints of revolution, and I say yes. It's a revolution on the nutrition level. Thank you to Antonio and Mike for speaking with us. You can find Spirit Mike and New World Growers on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to the show. You can hear all of our episodes at partisangardens.org. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.